This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the Locked In with Ian Bick podcast. You guys can listen to this podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. On today's episode, I have Michael Hampton, who just happens to be Andrew Hager's boss, coming on the show to talk about his time struggling with addiction, landing himself in prison, and then getting out, turning his life around, and opening up a huge enterprise of recovery houses. Thank you guys for tuning into the show. Thank you guys for the love, the support you give week after week, all the emails, the Instagram messages, the Facebook messages, the YouTube comments. It means so, so much to me, and we would not be here without you guys. You have consistently landed us in the top 200 podcasts in the world for society and culture. And it just, who would have thought it would gotten here this quickly? If you guys are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, please leave us a review. It really helps get the show out there to more people. And if you're watching this episode on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, and share. It does us wonders. Thank you guys again. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Michael Hampton. Michael, welcome to the show. You know, I got to be honest with you, for the first like three weeks after Andrew Hager introduced us, I was calling you Mickle <laughs> because of the way your name is spelled. Yeah, it's, uh, most people do. Anyway. Why is it spelled that way? Was it? I don't know. Mom just had a creative idea, so I cursed all my kids uh, with the same Michael or Malachi or McKenzie or Michaela's all with two Ks. Yeah. Just, I guess, a family tradition. It's you know? it's so unique. And then when Andrew finally said, hey, I, my boss is Michael, because like, you know how Andrew talks sometimes, he yeah. kind of says it very fast. So I thought it was Mickle. Right. <laughs> but then he finally said it's Michael. I was like, oh, okay. He really about sent me into relapse a second ago. He said two Ks because <laughs> at one time when I was kind of in the game, they was called me two Ks. That was your name? Yeah, that's what he just called me. That was, <laughs> is this a conspiracy? <laughs> Awesome. So let's start at the beginning, man. Um, where are you from? Where did you grow up? What's like the early Michael or Mickle days like for you? Uh, just uh, kind of a normal childhood for the most part. You know, I would act, honestly say um, kind of nothing crazy. Uh, mom kept foster kids, uh, had a big family. I would actually just had one brother and sister, but we, we kept a lot of foster kids coming in and out of the house. Um Mom and dad, you know, divorced a couple of times while we were growing up. I don't know if that's normal or not normal. I guess it kind of is these days. Uh, kind of just a normal childhood. I had good grandparents. I really can't. Uh, a lot of stories with addiction in, you know, started out with a really terrible childhood. Mine didn't. I actually had a great childhood. Uh, a lot of good memories, good grandparents. Uh, so, and I guess everything was pretty good until I started, you know, getting wild about the age of 15 or 16 year old, you know, smoking weed behind the, behind the, um, our house or shed or whatever it was down in Kentucky. But uh, for the most part, it was a pretty good childhood. What did your parents do for work? Um, mom just kind of kept care of kids. And then my dad worked construction. Uh, I've had a hammer in my hand since I was at the age about five. So was that a, like a well-paying job? 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For him that they were able to foster other kids and provide for other kids? Yeah, yeah. My dad, yeah, pretty much. But you also get paid from the state to keep kids. So uh-huh. we adopted a few over the years and stuff. But that's kind of what we did. Were you close with the foster kids at all that were adopted? Oh, uh, yeah. Come pretty close. Uh, you consider them like siblings? Uh, for the, yeah, for some, for the most part, I guess. You know, we, yeah. we have still in contact with a couple. Uh, it's just nothing. I don't know. You kind of fall apart over years. You know, after 22 years of addiction, you kind of lose connection with everybody. Yeah, that's uh, true. You know, especially if they're not direct family that's there to help support you and pick you up and tell you they love you unconditionally, you know, so. Yeah. What kind of kid were you? Like, are you a trouble, getting into trouble type kid uh, or are you like a cool rule follower, chill? No, I was never really the rule follower. I mean, I'm hopper. Uh, kind of ADHD, uh, never really that good in school. I've done really good because my mom done most of my work. Uh, you know, I can't read or write like most kids can, but I'm really, uh, you know, it took me twice to get to second grade. You know, it was just, uh, I never really, I was never the, I was actually a straight A student, but not because I deserved it, <laughs> because I guess uh, my mom done half of my homework. My mom used to do my homework all the time. Yes. Yeah, I only thing I could do good is really, you know, when it comes to numbers, uh, I'm kind of the numbers guy. Okay. Uh, I think my whole life started when I got a set of triple beams at the age of 16 uh, in front of me at a dope dealer's house. And he's like, hey, can you weigh out pot? And I'm like, I can do it. And uh, so all of a sudden I started learning le- learning what triple beams were, three and a half, seven, 14, 28. Yeah. I just learned what, you know, grams was and I became fascinated from, from then on. Isn't it kind of crazy that like the real life experience sometimes teaches us what school is meant to teach us, but we can't learn it in the school setting. We have to learn it in the real world setting. Yeah, definitely so. I think so. Imagine if they did it reverse, like they applied what you could actually use it for in the real world to teach someone, maybe not like weighing pounds of marijuana or anything, but but in general, I think it would it would definitely help with the, the school system. Oh, definitely. So, I mean, the way to build credit, the way to, I mean, take people's strengths instead of their weaknesses and instead of just picking on their weaknesses, use their strengths to, uh, to see them succeed and, and do better instead of kind of getting picked on for... Because uh, you can't read and you can't read out loud and you, you can't, I just, that wasn't me. I couldn't do it. Yeah. It kind of held me back a lot, you know. Did you have a plan like in high school, in the early days of high school for what you wanted to do when you grew older or were you kind of just going with the motion and the flow? Well, I I had a lot of drive. I mean, at the age of 13, I ran a fruit stand on the side of the road. A fruit stand? Yeah. <laughs> so at the age of 13, I also worked in a restaurant. At the age of 15, I took a full-time job at a restaurant, uh, but actually became a waiter in a in a restaurant. So I've just always worked. Like working's my thing, you know, picking up a hammer, uh, framing houses, just doing I was kinda have a I got a lot of ambitions and everything I do I kinda go full at it. So did that make you feel like very different from most kids, maybe like an outcast or anything? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I would go to parties and stuff and I'll, I'll never forget it. Like uh, I would be there sweeping up instead of like working with the rest of the or just playing with the rest of the kids. I, my mind was not like theirs, you know, it was I was interested in uh, how 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 can I how can I make money off these kids? Yeah. You know, like, you're literally describing my mindset in in, in high school too, because yeah. I was a kid that I was always cleaning and taking care yeah. of everyone at the parties. Going to swap meets and buying uh, 
a scooter and then flipping it for more money and just it's yeah. kind of always hustling just always works so. now eventually you come into drug use in high school like using starting out with weed i guess yeah it's it started you know out early anything i do i do full blast so at the age of you know 16 i you know i'm driving I, i'm you know, want to be the cool kid, you know, because I want to fit in, uh, kind of the outcast a little bit. But at the same time, uh, I had I had a driver's license, so I'm instantly cool, right? So uh, I got introduced to uh, pot really quick, and, and then it just kind of took off from there. You know, weighing out pot, getting pounds of pot at the age of 16. Uh, you know, I live in Kentucky, and like Macquarie County, Kentucky is the county, the poorest in the whole United States. And I live there, so I mean, I live right beside it, so I just started hustling at a very young age, you know, from my best friend's dad being a pharmacist and we cleaning it out and going in the pharmacy and, you know, getting diazepams and laser cuts and getting Tyloxes and, you know, just getting pills. So it just started a life of, uh, I guess, being accepted by others, but also uh, kind of fit my work ethic, you know, hustling and, and making money and, and all that. So were you motivated by the drug use or by selling the drugs to make money? I was I was kind of both. Uh, I was kind of I like to feed my habit, and I was a little different. I mean, I I had a big habit to feed, so I, I'd always everything I do, I do full blast. So mm-hmm. you know, from gambling to you know cooking dope to selling dope or just whatever it is to now drug rehabs, I'm full blast at it. You know, so were you like a functionable drug dealer, even though you were using? Because some can't understand the business aspect of it too but you were business minded at that age yeah it took me 22 years to finally get caught up but i was i wouldn't say functional it never gets better only gets worse but for the first few years of my life for the first 10 years of my life it was i wouldn't say manageable but i was doing it uh i definitely uh, i'll never forget i was driving down the road and i was just thinking the other day i actually i'd never built with big like trying to sound like something i'm not uh but i was you know at that time i had a bale of weed 22 pound bell and uh you know it was in my truck and i was going down the road to a job site because i worked my dad and my brother at the time and i flashed past my dad on the side of the road and he's like what are you doing son i know you got something on you my dad's straight laced right and he knows and i pull out a garbage bag and i show him a bale of weed you know it was probably like seven or eight pounds pulled off a bell but it's you know that's just kind of that was normal for me at that time at the age at 21, it just kind of took off. Are your parents trying to like talk you out of this lifestyle, sitting you down? Like they seem like good people, good parents, good family. My mom was kind of naive in the whole idea. My dad just, uh, I don't think they ever knew the extent of everything. I, I wore a pretty good mask. You know, I would still kind of show up to work for the most part until you can't no more. Yeah. You know, there for years, I, you know, I helped run a business. I helped run a framing crew. Uh, then it just slowly, just slowly gets worse and worse and worse, you know. How do you think um, your friends would describe you during this time period? I, I think most in this time period, they would think I would probably uh, definitely end up in prison. <laughs> I'd definitely be the one that uh, never made amount to anything. I think people still is at, at shock uh, for the most part, you know, that I've been out of prison for nine years, but people just don't believe still. Uh, there's like, what's he really up to? You know, like that kind of behavior, like people just don't get it. You know, how can you completely change my life and, and flip the script? It's hard. Like once you get labeled, yeah. you know, as that person, like I still have people calling me, like uh, um, like I'll post something and then the people will comment that don't even know me. They're like, ah, oh, he's a scammer or this and that. Like you just, yeah. that people are, they're stupid in that sense. Yeah. They, and they don't understand. Like I get high by doing the right thing today. So it gives me that, like I used to get high by, you know, doing the, not really the wrong thing or hustling and selling. But it actually, it it really thrills me to know that I'm not doing anything shady. And that's what keeps me going. 
uh, you know, to have people in your life to hold you accountable and have business partners in your life that they look at you and like, you're the best business partner I ever had. <laughs> I actually honestly trust you. Like, I don't trust anybody, but I trust you because that's the image and that's what gives me more drive to do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, because I was at points in my life where I'd steal from my own father. You know what I mean? I would, I would, I was the, the worst of the worst in my and, eyes. And you're the guy that went to prison and that they're trusting the most too. So yeah. it, it, it's good that, that you, they have that mindset of you now. It, it, I mean, it shows the growth. So do you go to college or do you skip college? Yeah, I don't, I don't even graduate high school. Uh, actually, I went to uh, Florida on September 2nd, uh, 1993. Got shot on October 2nd with a 357 in the stomach. Because uh, of drugs. It was a kind of a kind of. I would say a drug deal went bad. Hanging out with the wrong people, wrong crowd. Had a gun. Uh, asked me if I ever played Russian roulette, and I was afterwards like, "Hey man, put that fucking gun away. Don't want anything to do with that." And he shot me straight to the stomach. Came back to Kentucky, scared kid. You know, uh, got got involved in Christian school for a little bit. So I've always, you know, done the Christian card or try to play the Christian card for the best of my ability. You know, I've been church hurt more than anyone in the world probably. Uh, I would still. I, I. It was crazy because. I came back. I was, you know, trying to do good. My grandma bought me a vehicle, only thing I've ever had bought for me my whole entire life. Uh, she bought me, I'll never forget, an 87 Grand Dam. And she said, you start hanging out with those kids again, and God's going to take it from you. And uh, sure enough, I get drunk and put it on the railroad tracks and watch a train hit it. You yeah. watched a train hit your car? Yeah, I was intoxicated, and I was going to cruise over the hill, mountain, you know, like, you got mountains around here, and we was going to cruise over the mountain and go to town and smoke a joint. And so the train actually hits the car. Yeah, yeah, the train hits it. I, I wasn't in it. We were. I went around yeah. the curve, and you know. Yeah, you parked it. No, I jumped into the tracks because I was just not paying attention and went around the curve. And oh wow! Yeah, so busted all the tires and dented the dented the wheels and get out. I'm like, hey, come help me! And then guys like, get the guy over the hill. So I take off running over the hill and ding, 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 and I watch a car cream or a train cream my car. So. Yeah, this is a lot of crazy stuff. Yeah, so right after this, like when you're in Florida, is that where you start like the, the actual drug business, like carrying it out even more? Uh, no, so I, like I said, I went to Christian school for just a little while and I came back here, uh, kind of started the same thing I always did in the summer. I started hanging out with the guys again. Uh, mm-hmm. I started wanting to really kind of be accepted amongst my friends that I, I really believe they were friends, but we were all just kind of in the madness together. Uh, and I started hanging around them and never really come out of it, you know, until 22 years later. Why do you think you wanted to be accepted by these groups of people? I think a lot of us fear acceptance, so we want to be uh, accepted. Like we walk in the room and want people to like us, so therefore uh, we we go along with the crowd and we're allowed for peer pressure to, to pressure us and uh, because you want to be accepted. You want people to like you. So we walk into the room and want to be accepted. And, and that's my story, you know, all through even, you know, going to jail, like, you know, like I wanted to be accepted in jail, even though uh, I didn't want to, I wanted to straighten up. June 26, 2012 was my clean date, but even though I went to jail and I sold Suboxone and I sold meth and I took care of all the tobacco in the jails, because uh, that's all I'd ever known was to hustle. And so I'd done it for so many years. And I'd only done it because people were like, man, we know you got the plug, you can do it, you can do it. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not about that life no more. And every time I would give in and break week and, you know, get get stuff brought in and I didn't want to it was just something I was so embedded in me for just doing the wrong thing for so many years so when you get back and you're hanging out with these individuals what type of business are you starting like with the drugs the gambling what's your entire operation uh so I mean it's escalated over the years you know I, I ran a frame crew with my dad and my brother and then uh you know eventually it never gets better only gets worse we end up uh, buying a gas station together me my dad and my brother kind of ran it in the ground uh, we didn't run it in the ground. Actually, my dad took it, and while we ran the construction company, kind of in the ground, we just we just not 
not able to work once you get so far in your addiction. And, you know, had poker machines in the back of the, the gas station. And, and we also had, I opened a poker room up and also had, you know, I, I owned a poker room and also owned a game room where we just play poker machines and uh, that kind of life. So it, it was just a world of craziness, you know, like it's hard to. What are the ins and outs of like running a poker table and a, and a, and a poker game off the books, like not legal in that sense? Uh, you can rake <clears> the pot, you know what I mean? You, you can keep people in, uh, you know, like you can, you know, you, you drag the pot forever, ever hand you play. And, and so you, you bank money there and then they got their spouses with them that don't play poker and they're in the back playing the machines and, and they're feeding them, you know, anything that can back in a corner and take on the world, you're going to make money from. And, it, it was it was really a, just a crazy life, you know. I mean, I would cook dope to sell dope to uh, to gamble to lose it all to start back over again. You were cooking dope. You had like a meth lab. Uh, yeah, I actually my charges as uh, trafficking methamphetamines was my last charge, but complicity in manufacture was was my deal. Uh, I sold meth for sixteen years of my life. Uh, the last five years, six years, I think I would I got introduced to cooking meth. Uh, that's when. Uh, life really just took a turn you know I was one of, always I had a daughter and you know she was seven when I went to prison but I always wanted to be that good father but my best thinking as an addict was cooking dope and blowing dope if anybody knows anything about cooking dope I, you know I actually done the actually whole cook up I didn't do the shake and bake what they done the last few years you know it's been 13 14 years since I cooked any dope I guess more like 12 years uh, but I would um I would sit on, like, on the outside of the house you know my house was condemned for cooking meth in it even though I never cooked dope in it. Uh, but I would, my best thinking as a father was on the other side of the wall, I'd be blowing gas outside uh, with my seven-year-old daughter sleeping on the other wall. I mean, that's just where my addiction finally got to. Uh, it's, it's the craziest thing ever in insanity, thinking that you can mix ammonia nitrate and lie together in a five-gallon, in a, in, a, in a gas jug, use a condenser, make your own anhydrous gas, and and... If that's okay with your daughter on the other side of the wall. No. You know, like, I wanted to be a good father, you know. How hard is it to cook meth? Is it like Breaking Bad? Like, what are the similarities and differences? Well, so there's different stages. You know, that was kind of a hiring, I would guess you would say, done in bigger real laboratories. We were just kind of rednecks and just doing our, doing our own thing. You know, we, you, know you, you take Sudafed and, uh, you know, you crush them down and, you know, you get your batteries and your ether and you get your pitcher readies and, uh, and as well as I'd always blow gas, so I would take money and I trade lot and blow gas. And I did only do about ten box cooks. You know, I wasn't the Walter White. You know, like <laughs> you know, a lot of like to. I wish I could brag at that, that. You know, but I was never like that scale, or I don't, I don't think it would be much of a brag. But you know, like I would never. I was never at that league, but I was a lot different than just someone doing a little shake and bake, yeah. like a one box cook or something. So. Why is cooking meth so dangerous? Like you hear about in the TV shows when they do the raids and stuff, it's always like a big ordeal if there's, if it's a known meth lab. Why is that? I think it's just uh, just the chemicals. And, and, you know, like I really never did it in the house. Uh, I did strain off dope in the house, you know, after you cook it and you mix it together, just the toxins that they put off is very unhealthy for you. Okay. Yeah, it was, and, and what does one cook net you like profit what, what's the breakdown you do this cook how much do you nothing. gross nothing nothing i mean <laughs> so then well, why do it, it we wouldn't say because if i wasn't if i wasn't actually using yes but because okay. i use so much i would sell so much and i'd gamble so much i just never it was like a vicious cycle i'd cook dope to have enough money to go to the game room at night just to gamble it all away to wake up in the morning broke with about an hour of sleep two hours of sleep try to go to work and, and try to pull it off and 
uh, it just it was just a cycle over and over and over for years of my life. Uh, there was nearly no money in that. There, now the money was in the game room. There's there was definitely crazy money in that. Uh, that was um, that was a definitely. I actually gave it up the day I got out of prison. Uh, oh, you were still running the game rooms while you were in. So I was only locked up for 24 months, Class D killer, state time, whoopee. I was doing 24 months. I got an eight year sentence. Day I got out, I'll never forget. My dad pulled up in the car. I walked down the treatment because I had to do six months SAP program in the state. And they're like, Dad walks in, and I walk down, and he's like, "What are you going to do with your game room?" I said, "I don't know what I'm going to do, Dad, but I'm not going to serve two masters." I said, "I'm going to do something different in my life, and I'm going to do whatever it takes." And I tried to talk to him while I was in prison, but like every time I would mention it to him, he was like, "We'll talk about that when you get home. We'll talk about that when you get home," because it was totally my business. And but he was managing my money while I was locked up. Uh, you know, he was paying my child support, he was paying my house payment, uh, he was paying what and anything I needed. I was living, you know, I was living pretty large in there and all the phone time, calling my daughter, calling whoever I want because I had money coming in. I had as much money as I wanted coming in, whatever I told them to send me, sent me. Yeah. So it was, and then I had drugs coming in on top of that. So it was just, it was endless money cycle, really. Uh, so it's kind of one of them things. Like you just. Now, when you were doing meth, did you have like the skin, uh, you know, lesions or that the messed up skin from the meth when you were using it? I didn't. So it was. You know, it was like 12, 13 years ago. I, I was a smoker. I smoked and smoked and I smoked my brains out, snore, do hot rails and stuff. So it was really never, uh, I was never really started shooting. Uh, so the shooting causes those. I just, I think the cleanness of the dope, I was really kind of picky on all that. And I kind of maintained because I was not really functional, but I just never really completely just balled completely out, I guess you would say, or uh I don't really know how how I kept it together. I mean, I would I was I burnt myself up twice. I'm still scarred from here, and my tats up here covers them. And uh, I, you know, I actually I'll, I'll never forget. I, I was cooking a batch outside the house, and I came back in, and I was straining my bucket off, and I'm up in the attic, and all of a sudden uh, I didn't eat through the filter, and I know that sounds crazy, but then all of a sudden, bam! Uh, I poured the pitcher off, the lithium hits it, and it shoots a flame and fire up, and actually that. When I, I go down the steps and there was a fire extinguisher there where we stole it from ripping out copper out of a factory. And we were just crazy insanity things that we'd done. And I would run up there and put out the fire and then come out and just sit. And I just remember sitting in the shower, like waiting for the cops to get there. And the cops never showed up. Uh, you know, my skin melting off, you know, and my best thinking was just cover it up and keep going on. You know, what am I going to do to get the next batch? Yeah. Did you have any close like overdose experiences for you yourself as a user? No, not, not, I was just really stuck to the meth. Uh, that was really... Is mean. meth dangerous to use in that sense? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. I, I think now with the fentanyl and, and just, just the craziness, and you know, it was... I hate to say it was better back then because that's almost like six... Different times, different times. Different times, yeah. It was just as sick, but it's just... Yeah. I maintained for 16 years, uh, you know, I, I don't know how. I just, just kept showing up and... What was the most, like, craziest thing you've experienced as like a drug dealer this meth cooker what, what happened and i mean was there any like robberies anything wild i mean that was just it was constant stuff like that you, you know like it's been you know 11 years and your mind's blocked out i, I remember cooking at an official in, in his house in, in kentucky and i'll never forget because i was in drug court i was already on publicity to cook manufacture uh, cook methamphetamines i was already charged for the five years for that and i had to go to drug court uh, I'll never forget I, the closest call I had after that. I guess I was in the barn and we were straining the dope off, and uh, all of a sudden 
uh, here comes a dude up in the tractor and uh, he's actually a county cop. And uh, I, we was on a big farm and I just remember looking at and we were, I mean, there's bags hanging in there, you know, in, in like getting ready to smoke it off, smoke rolling out, you know, and uh, kind of got away with that, you know, but there's just time after time of just crazy stories. Life was not manageable at all. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like a block now because it, it's, it's been a few years, but then I, I start talking sometimes. And I remember my wife really gets a kick out of it. She's, because she's, she, she's never known me to be an addict. So I'll tell her these stories, and she was like, will you quit talking about my husband? <laughs> like, I don't know that man, you know. So over the years, I've kind of numbed myself of a lot of things, but just toxic behavior, toxic relationships. Yeah, we tend to shut out all those things until we start, like, uh, talking about them. And really, and then you're like, oh, I remember when that happened. Yeah. So when do you finally get, like, caught? Do you get, like, is there, like, a big drug raid? Is there a big arrest? What goes down? Uh, actually, it was, it wasn't... It was crazy because I graduated drug court. I'm the guy that went to drug court. Um, you know, addicts were master manipulators. We are, I think, one of the smartest people when it comes to getting our way, right? So the first day in drug court, I walk in, uh, meet up with the guy. I begin to think, all right, in my brain, not knowing, but I'm already knowing what I'm doing, I make friends with the guy doing the drug testing. I mean, that's just what we do. And I never forget walking in and... Uh, I was dirty, you know what I mean? They'd already lab me. They've been, you know, I'm, in the whole 16 years of my Matthews, I was only sober three months, and it was when I was in drug court. And I finally ended up, I was still cooking dope every day, and I was still doing the things. And I'll never forget, I just walked in there, and I knew I was hot. I knew I was dirty, so I brought him piss with me. <laughs> and when I brought him piss with me, I just dropped my dropped my drawers, and then I, all of a sudden I just took piss out of my pocket and just poured it in the cup. And he's like, "What? what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, but I'm sorry I'll never do it again. Uh, so I, I think I had him on the hook then. I really meant in my mind that I would never do it again, but of course I did it again. I'm an addict, you know. So I began to graduate drug court, totally hot, totally cooking dope, uh, totally in the madness still. Uh, I was getting ready to get hardcore in the madness. I just left the gambling boat. Uh, I was getting ready to meet up with the machine lady the next morning. I had I only had $5,800 in my pocket. Uh, you know, that was machine money. I was going to re-up after I got my cut. Uh, and, you know, I was only had, like, scales and baggies and, like, a half eight ball of meth. Nothing crazy. Uh, knocked on the door at 7.30 in the morning. It's probation and pro. Maybe closer to 8. But knocked on the door, and I didn't know it was them. I opened the door, and I was like, oh, crap. So then I go to throw something, and uh, then they walk in. They find the scales. They find the baggies. Uh, they come to just check on me after drug court, which is supposed to expunge all that. But I never reported, so I never done like the last initial setup, you know, to talk to them. So they walked in and uh, they raided me. Of course, didn't find that much, I mean, but they got me for trafficking methamphetamines on top of my five-year sentence. So they sentenced me to eight years. So had you completed drug court successfully and gave up that lifestyle and the drugs, you never would have went to prison. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think so. I just wasn't ready. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't ready when I got to jail. You know, I mean. I was wanting to always do the right thing, but I said I'd walk in jail and people knew me and I would begin to hustle in jail because the only thing I ever known. I mean, that's the worst thing. If you, you stay in addiction for so many years, uh, how do you straighten up? You know, it, it, it doesn't happen as magically as you want it to happen, you know, because, you know, you got other people in jail and then they're hoaxing to do this. And I mean, I think that poses a great question, too. Is the system you know, correct in that way? Because you're taking people that are committing crime and putting them with more people that have committed crime or are still committing crime in prison, is that necessarily helping them reform? I, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a tough thing. Well, that's kind of, that's what I do the 
what I do today. I, you know, I went to a DLC program, six month program. Um, that wasn't what worked for me. Uh, I, I got it. You know, I got involved in church. Uh, not that I'm religious, but but you know, I do believe in Christianity. I'm a pastor of a church, but I kind of believe a lot differently than a lot of the ways I've been taught. I've been church hurt so much, uh, but I got. Uh, it was it was neat because I I knew that day I wanted to do something different in my life on June 26, thousand twelve. I wanted to do something different. I didn't know how to do it, uh, and then I began to put action in play. I was I was the guy that you know. Uh, jailhouse religion. I would carry my Bible. I'm, you know, I'm going to take on hell with a squirt gun. I'm going to do all these things and the mighty works of God and do all this stuff. And it just didn't work that way. It was a, it was a long, slow process for me. Mm -hmm. I, we are learned behavior modification, which is, I exactly don't believe in at all. Uh, I'm going to get a lot of slack off this, uh, but I just think love and tolerance and, and encouragement is, is what gets people sober. I have a program that I just, I believe in a different way. And, you know, it works for some. It works for most. It works for a lot of people. I've seen more success with that than behavior modification. Uh, love and tolerance is our code, uh, you know. So I, I, I guess I got out of uh, the DLC program or Department of Corrections and wanted to do something different, and that's the kind of how how I started. So how old were you when you went to prison? I was thirty six or seven. And you're a white guy, thirty six that goes to prison. Are you given a hard time at all? When I, when I say prison, I'm a class D killer from the state of Kentucky. Yeah. There's just, we just, I think it's just a talk we call prison. It's a class D jail. So what you does know, that mean for that, someone that uh, doesn't know? It's it's work release. Uh, you get, you get to go out during the day after you get classified and all that. I was supposed to go to the Rotary Farm. I was actually supposed to go uh, do state time, but where I got my five years up front from drug court, and then I got three years stacked on top, uh, which made me a C. But time it all calculated and went through, I missed having to go to the Rotary Farm, which I should have went. But in the state of Kentucky, anything non-drug violent, 10 years unless you go you go to a Class D facility. Yeah. So that's kind of where I bounced around to different county jails. So I, very easy going. Yeah, it, yeah, it kind of was. It was, you know, people can say what it is, but yeah, it's pretty easy going. What are some of the guys there for charge-wise? Just mostly drugs. Mostly drugs. Non-violent drug offenders. Okay. Uh, it was, you know, also people coming out of uh, doing a 20-year stint. They had to go first to, you know, the county jail Class D to get out. Yeah. Uh, so you have that's going towards the end of the sentence. You know, you'll have them there. But, you know, like I said, I couldn't even get get right in jail. I'd always seem to land good jobs. But, you know, I got kicked out of the my first county jail I was in. And then I got shipped. I got kicked out of my first SAP program for eating Elville, trading Reese cups. Like I'm just a kid that don't follow rules. So yeah. I just I, could, I just I don't know. I have a complex with it. No, you said you hustled in prison. Can you describe like the hustle you built up and how much money you would make? I mean, people, I just don't really blow it up. You know, I made money. Uh, I made money on phone cards. Uh, I could make as much money as I wanted, but I've always been kind of a different kind of character. Uh, I really like to help people in a way. And uh, so I'd always have boxes and I had money on the outside. And I had, so I, I would, I took care of a lot. I just kind of helped people, you know, like, you know, like a lot of the two for one stores and stuff. I was just never into it. Sometimes I'd get took advantage of and stuff. And I just like, you're going to get me once, but you're going to do it twice. And, uh, I just, you know, it was one of the things I had more phone time than I could ever spend. Cause you know, you're getting seven suboxone strips in or, or with four or five subicade or with a half eight ball or meth or ball of meth that's in a County jail. You can live pretty large for a little while, you know, like, and, and, and I didn't even want to. So it was kind of just giving it away to the people that, that my, which my cousin was in there was aggravating me and I would give it to him. <laughs> and 
Uh, and I wouldn't didn't want anything to do with it because I really wanted to do something different in my life. But if it's all you ever known, it, it's a, it's a process. How does that stuff get smuggled in? Is it through a guard or through some other process? It's it's so easy when you're on work release. I mean, uh, there's this one guy. I don't know how you do it, but he keister about a half pound of backer. Did you say he keistered it? Oh yeah. He so keistered. what's keistering for the people that don't oh, know? Oh yeah, we just you duct tape it and put it up to the ass. You know, that's what you do. You you tape it down and compress it, and compress it, and compress it. I put it in plastic and, and tape it up, and that's what you do. You know, put so it inside. How much, how much is it that's getting duct taped? Uh, he can almost put a pound. I never a seen pound? a I swear I never seen somebody like could do this, and and he would bring it in with the suboxone. And, and are you like hesitant to like smoke it or try it after if it's been up someone's ass? Yeah, like, I mean, it's that's how you do it. You know, like I mean, they one thing about it didn't come dirty because you know you have to cut it up, and they you take a lot of one thing about convicts. We're pretty smart when it comes to uh being clean you know like it's kind of what you do you learn that you learn that respect when you go to go to jail so it was it was not nothing nasty uh, yeah but the, i guess the initial first pull out might be but i just i couldn't picture it man. i couldn't either yeah no. uh, like I, you always hear the jokes like what do you hide in your ass and stuff i've never seen that in prison and yeah. i would never do that or try something that's been up in someone's ass yeah. in the federal prison system they have the little thumb phones yeah and i've heard stories of guys putting that up like an ass but yeah. i don't know it's disgusting i couldn't yeah imagine. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah every time i was like I don't know about this. What are they using for the currency, like to pay for the drugs and whatnot? Because you guys don't have like cash, hey, just, right? Just phone time. Just like, everything's yeah. phone time. Phone time and mm. commissary, and you know. What's like a top commissary item at the prisons you were at? Uh, it was just you know just pops. It was so in the class C. This kind of you know you get uh, coffee. You know you know how it is. Keefe coffee. You know. Yeah. The, oh, you guys had Keefe too in the yellow bags. Or no, yeah, yeah. Keefe, and then you could get the. We had store bought stuff at, at some of the jails, and we get big things of vanilla creamer and yeah uh, you know, it's kind of like typical i remember at the detention center i was at like every wednesday you could order from a restaurant like a local restaurant yeah, you yeah get, we it, did too yeah we yeah. could order pizza once a week i think that's great like they should yeah. have that across the board why i mean why not the prison makes money you know that the inmates can eat good yeah i think so too that's what kind of did so. how long do you end up spending in prison just 31 months 31 24 in county and then another six month programs so. this is on an eight-year sentence yeah. so you did about half or less than half yeah, I've done, yeah, oh, yeah, a lot less than it has, well, but I've done 24 months. So I, I could have, and so you do 15% in the state of Kentucky on an eight-year sentence. So in 19 months, I went up for pro, but where I got kicked out of a SAP program for eating Elville, I didn't get to, they flopped me for another six months. So then I had to go to another six months, and then I go up for pro again, and then they flopped me to a SAP program. So, so you only have to do 15 months? You have to do 19 months on an eight-year sentence, 15%. You know, the South always has like, a, or, or the Central South, whatever, has a bad rep for being really tough on drugs and crime. I'm surprised that you could get out so early on a, on a drug crime. You go 45 minutes down the road to Tennessee and you're going to do half. You know, it's you get four, you do two. You know, it's kind of simple. That's kind of wild. Yeah. That's stricter than like uh, in some other states yeah. too. Yeah, so it's just all where you're at. Yeah, but then you meet some guys in the feds that got 20 years and they're doing 85, 85 yeah, 85. on weed, on yeah. fucking pot. Yeah, That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it doesn't make sense at all, does it? The whole system's backwards. When you got out, what are like some struggles you faced? Are you, are you dealing with relapse at all or are you completely clean? You want to focus on your life? Yeah, yeah, I was really, I was head strong. You know, I actually answered my call on the preach while I was locked up uh that was which was very interesting uh 
got out, want to take on, held the squirt gun. I'll just never forget the little things that gave me the strength. Every time you say no, the, the, the someone seeing you like, Hey man, I'm called to preach. And people's like, what the hell? You know, like this guy's really, you know, like, cause people that knew me knew something was up. Just like you were saying earlier, like people like, is this really true? Is it true? And I'll be like, I'm called to preach or he's going to scam the church. You know, like, so <laughs> I won't even take a salary still to this day because of that. Like people yeah. think I'm going to rob him, you know, like, because yeah. I was so into the madness, you know, like, I was very capable of doing things, you know, when you robbed your own father for, for the games or for machine money that you got a cut of anyway, but you'd still steal. You know, like I got banned for pretty much every game room that, that, that wasn't mine because I could go in and get in the machines and, and manipulate them and, and win. And so it's just, it's just a crazy life. Is it fine? Is it, do you find it's hard to get people to follow and believe in you as a preacher because of your past? Well, Sort of, I guess you would say. Uh, I, we, I, I started with preaching at a church, had six people. Uh, I went through different denominations at first. Uh, now the church, we can't even set enough people in it on, on Sunday morning. It's completely full. Uh, a lot of them with, with clients of mine from like coming recovery. Uh, but it's, it's such a different atmosphere. It's kind of people that's kind of fed up with the BS they've learned in church their whole life. And and just to love people and accept people and to encourage people and uh, to let them know they are powerful and they have favor and they have choice and they're loved. Uh, so it's a different different atmosphere than than what you would call uh, your church right down the road, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's what works nowadays. Though being different, taking a new spin on things, a new approach. Yeah, just you know making about you know Christianity is based on what Christ did. Religion is based on what you do. So basing anything on what you do, we've already failed so much in our life. I can't do it. Uh, so that's why I really believe the way I believe my theology. We all have different God thoughts. Uh, I don't say my God thoughts are better than yours. My PTSD, my trauma, my background, my education is lead me to believe the way I believe. Uh, so I kind of I, I do it in such a gentle way. Like no matter how you believe, we're, we're all a little different. Uh, we don't have to exactly believe the same thing. Uh, but, you know, I get a lot of slack from from people because I am the grace guy and yeah. I, I believe in. I believe in it's so it's so cheap it's free you know it's like so i'm definitely the grace guy and i just think some people have such a low view of god's law they think they could do it i have such a high view i know i can't yeah so do you have any triggers like to relapse again or or how do you stay away from wanting to go down those paths or, or, or the background i've just never uh you know after 10 years 11 years now i just never really had i just was done you know like when you finally know that you're completely done uh, and walking out of prison, you know, open up a rehab uh, really helped. You know, I took the house that was condemned for cooking meth in it and started a 16-bed rehab facility. Me and my in that house? Yeah, in that house. And, and I can go in, I can talk to the clients, and I can show them things in the house and show them things. Like, I never cooked dope in the house. Uh, so, but, yeah, it was, uh, the, it was the big orange stickers and, you know, like the, the, the big uh, – uh, you know the me being in the front page of the paper with the guys in the white suits walking around and stuff you're like like the Martians looking guys you know yeah. and so it was to people to see that living right on Main Street in 27 in, in Somerset uh, to see the transformation people still they, they wonder you know do you think all that shit that happened to you led you to your purpose now I think so I think I, I really do I mean I think all that led me to the purpose I was kind of green, but not green with some of the guys I've heard speak. I'm like, eh, you know what, if I had to do it over, I probably would pick a lot of different things. Uh, you know, I would like my first daughter to have seen a different life than she had to see. Uh, I'm sure she'll have some PTSD, even though she works in my HR department now. Your daughter does? Yeah, she's, she's 19, just got married. Uh, you know, she makes 
TikToks about uh, how her father, uh, she, it was kind of funny the other day. She's like, we're going to the gas station to get a bug juice, but we're really going for a drug deal. You know, like, I mean, my daughter at seven years old know what I was doing. You know, knew I was selling dope and, and knew and I was the good father, so I wanted to do it at the gas station down the road instead of bringing people to my house. Yeah. You know, that's, that's my best thinking. Uh, as someone that runs like recovery houses and whatnot, is it tough to interact with people that have are facing the same struggles that you faced once upon a time? To what now? Like in regards to like, you know, like drug use or alcohol use, anyone that's affected by that, is that hard for you to sit with them and work through it? No, that's, 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 I guess my purpose. You know, that's kind of what I do. I go into a treatment center every single morning that, that I, uh, that I own, like coming to recovery, I go in and, and, and tell them my experience, strength, and hope, and, and they can tell the, the realness of the stories and how really my life has been transformed. And I teach them how big of a mess that I still really am, how I don't have it all figured out, and I'm just getting up and showing up every day and putting one foot in front of the other uh, with my willingness and stop making excuses. I don't do it perfect. Like, you know, like my treatment centers, I've been open for over three years. Uh, we've grown like wildfire, fire, uh, but... People's like, man, you've been so obedient, man. God's really used you. And I'm like, God really uses me because I show up. It's not because I've been obedient. I've been obedient to the fact that I show up, but not because I've done it perfect. You know, I mean, God, if God's going to use perfect people, there's nobody to use. Like, we're all equal. There's no one better than me. Or like, When I look at an addict, I look at myself. I'm like, there's no one better than you. No one better than me. We're all equal on this earth. And so that's, I have a different philosophy of, of, of just encouraging addicts to do something different in their life because they can see me 22 year in addiction, selling drugs, owning game rooms, and doing what I do to completely change my life to help others. Uh, and, and I still hustle. I, I teach them, uh, teach them how, how I, I started with an $8 an hour job to, to two years later quitting a $42 an hour job to run my own business. Uh, and you can do it. And that's what I tell people. Like there's nothing you can't do. And I ask people, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? And that's what you're called to do. Because uh, we're all called to something. Yeah. And, and we all have our heart desires to do. And I teach people that God says, delight yourself in me, biblical. And he gives you the desires of your heart. So I really encourage people to, to really dig deep. And uh, you don't need me telling what you need to do and how to run your podcast. You already know in your heart the way you want to do it. And that's the way it should be done. Uh, so and telling people that and really believing in them, and you, you can you can see some people take off and do some wonderful things. Absolutely. Um, now, is it is it like hard to navigate as someone with a felony on your record in your line of work and owning businesses and being an entrepreneur? Are there is it is it easy for someone to do that, or are there obstacles? I, don't, I haven't really seen many obstacles. I think there's it gets a time that as me with a tenth grade education, I can't read or write well. Uh, I got, let me see, let's look here, 50,000 50, unanswered emails. <laughs> I can't put words together on paper. If you ever see me text you, I can't write. I can't write a Facebook post tweet about my wife or about my kids without someone doing it for me. Uh, learning that that to, that you, I don't have to do it all today and get people, like I just hired a president for the company. Uh, you know, he's a veteran in the state of Kentucky. He's, he's wonderful at what he does. Uh, so... I grew too big, so I know now that I need to lay my title down or not necessarily lay it down, but, you know, I have over 100 employees, and a lot of those are addicts. And then I have a lot of professional people, doctors, I have clinicians, you know, probably 25 clinical clinicians that work for me. Uh, so I think it's 
a lot of people we want to use excuses and we want to say that we can't do this. So what I try to empower people is that you can do all things. There's nothing you can't do. What would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? And do it and go for it. We have nothing to lose. And maybe that I'm so radical and crazy because I'm content no matter what. I, I'm really content if 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 I have to start back over again. You know, I put it all on the line. We bought a motel last week to, to, to house addicts. I mean, a, 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 a big motel, you know, like cost a lot of money and it's it's not even going to be profitable. But there's other ways, no other incomes. That, that 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 makes up for it and that's to really give back I, I got into you know the treatment world because I just couldn't stand the way other people were doing it they didn't really they they want to milk people through to get the insurance money but then there's no aftercare there's no nobody taking them to work there's there's nobody making sure uh, that 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 they're paying bills there's no one to teach them how to pay bills and so we we kind of started a different program uh, that people can come and succeed and start from nothing and start over yeah have you had the conversation with your kids about your past and, and what you've been through and who you are today? Because if, if they Googled you, I'm sure they could find yeah, they stuff could. from your past. And yeah. I'm sure, you know, as they get older, kids might say things or vice versa or whatever. How, how do you uh, yeah, deal just, with that? I'm just so open about it. There's not even, I don't even hide any. Like if you meet me and I'm riding the golf cart down the subdivision and, uh, you know, and you're a doctor, and I'm like, hey, how, you know, I talk to them, and I let them know who I am. I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not scared of who I am. You know, that makes sense. Like, I don't, I don't care that I was a two-time convicted felon. It doesn't bother me. I love to tell people my story so they can be open about their story. What we do, we keep everything in, and and we cover it with a bandaid, and we can meet more people with our brokenness than our goodness. So by me telling my story within a few minutes to anybody I meet, they almost get a little scared at first. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they begin to open up and talk about their ugly selves, about their, their ugly self, about their, their selves and, and their truths and their hurts and their habits and the things that they've done. And uh, so it's, it's actually almost, it's a good thing that I can get so honest about it. And my kids, I'm going to always be honest with them about it. And, and what about like your wife? What does she think about everything that you've been through? What were like some of those conversations like when you had to explain things to her? I th I think she just everybody already knew, you know, like it was never been a secret, <laughs> and so it was. It, she like I said, she freaks out sometimes when I tell her stories, or I'm like, this was that I've done that, and I've done this there, and I robbed that place, and <laughs> and you know, breaking into businesses, I broke in that door and done this, and she's like, who are you, you know, like, and people don't get it, but people that know me, like. To see your friends that really come to you, that really know you. Like, we can't hide from our friends. There's nothing that we can hide. Like, people that you've really done crimes with. They look at you. They know you. They know your insides. Uh, they know you. You know, like, so one of my guys that, that well, two of them, one of my best friends actually came to me, uh, went to treatment. One of them went to treatment, uh, got sober. Uh, he used to, I would get the picture ready, or I would blow the gas, and he'd get the picture ready. When he would get the picture, or I'd get the gas ready, uh, I would, you know, we worked as a team. We became, a, and then he got, I went to prison and then he went to prison. And then now he actually runs the drug testing lab for me. So he, we still work in the laboratory together, but we don't work in the same time in the lab. And my friends started coming to me and they started seeing the real difference. And I had many friends that, that got sober, but then I have many friends that don't. Uh, but I have people like, they see that the difference, they know it and they want it and, 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 and it works. Are you cautious of who you spend your time with and let into your circle? Uh, somewhat, I guess. I mean, 
not so much. I mean, because I guess because of my mental health, I mean, and the way I struggle, I don't let a lot of people in, not because I don't want to. It's like I struggle with uh, giving attention to the people I love the most. Uh, and it's, it's really to do with my mental health. It's to do with my ADHD. It's to do with my having to work 27. I have to do this, you know. And it, it's almost sick a little bit, you know, where like, I love my fa- my family, my father, my wife, my kids, and I neglect them a lot of times. Uh, and that's something I got to get better at, you know. You work on it a little bit each day and, you know, helps there to, to reach out, therapy, anything like that, talking to, it goes wonders just talking to someone. Yeah, I think it helps just knowing that, that I'm a mess, knowing that I don't have to pretend to be the great grandiose old father on Facebook because I'm not. I show up every day. I show up every day for my wife. I don't always do the right things, but I, I show up and I put effort in it. And I think that's part of it. How do you think people would describe you now? Like if we had your wife here today and I asked her that question, how would she describe you? Crazy. Crazy? Yeah. In a good way or? Both. <laughs> I mean, definitely. She's, you know, a big, big supporter. But, uh, you know, I think she would, she's, she, she's never seen the side of me that, that I talk to her about sometimes. And but she loves you. Yeah. yeah. She's seen glimpses of it before, you know, get a little upset or something. And, uh, but she, luckily, she don't have to see that. But she does have to deal with the workaholic side. <laughs> she has to deal with the uh, always have to be doing something side. Uh, but there's good that comes with that, too. They're definitely, my kid's. Are not going to ever. I hope they don't ever to worry about the things that I had to worry about, or, 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 and I don't say I really have to worry about them that much myself. But you know, like I want to see my kids have things and do things, and, and not not be a financial burden. And uh, so I try to, like I said, I I think she would just have to say that you know, you know I'm just crazy. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what would your one takeaway? be for someone that's listening to this what do you want them to get out of your story your message um i think you can do all things there's nothing that you, you can't do in your life there's uh, you know there's really you can hold yourself back you can use excuses but you have to become willing uh, willing to take suggestions and willing to uh, stop making excuses and, and become willing to show up even when it's hard like a lot of days are hard to get up i mean you know it's it's hard to to go when you don't want to and you have to do it anyway and, and that's the only way you're really going to succeed and do something different with your life is put a lot of effort into it. It's not going to be given to no one. You know, I think back in my life, and I'm so glad that I guess no one's really ever handed to me that I always had to work for it. You know, I got that one car gave to me and then I put it <laughs> on the railroad tracks. So, and I had to earn, you know, everything. Like if, if I had to get up and, and work and try and, and try over and over. And I think, I think if I could tell anybody anything, it was, you know, <laughs> You, you, you can do anything you choose in life if you just put the work behind it and you don't have to do it perfect and you can keep messing up and but you can't not ever stop showing up yeah and good things happen when you stay focused consistent and and, and keep showing up that's amazing what can come from it yeah like you know we i have over 100 employees now uh you know and and i don't say that like oh you know like it's it's because keep showing up and I keep giving back and I walk into a room and, and try to give my life away instead of take and try to meet people right where they're at like there's you know there's there's so much judgment in the world today and I want to have a different look where I just love people and accept people and uh, just look at them and see their value once you go through some hard things in your life uh, you know from you know I don't know how long we got but I have a pretty interesting little story of, about something that happened to me when I was young you know, at the age of 16, I made a stupid decision, and I went in, went home from work with some guys. I got raped, uh, and 
I began to talk about that here in the last year or so, and it's actually gave me freedom and actually gave me where actually can almost have compassion for the guy that did it, which I shouldn't, but I do because what kind of pain he must have felt. Like we've done some bad things in our life and we felt some, and, and, and people's done some bad things to us, but what made him do that? And when I finally started realizing that it's okay to talk about that, I don't have to be that manly to, to someone to, that wasn't my choice as a 16 year old kid for someone to rape me. You know, that, that's, that's hard. You know, that's hard to talk about that on a podcast. It's hard to talk about that for the whole world to hear, but there's so many stories like that and we can talk about it. You know, it's confessing your faults one turn over the hill or just getting open and, and been able to say, Hey, I've had some bad stuff happen here. I had some bad choices, but you know, that's, it's, it's, it's okay. You know, it's okay that, that I don't have the perfect life. It's, it's okay that, that I, I can learn from my mistakes. And I don't have to put on the image of everything's perfect today because it's not. Has it really taken you a lot of years to really like process everything you've just said and be able to be open and talk about it? Because a lot of people can't do that and they can't talk about it openly, something that that's traumatically happened to them in that regards. Yeah, I, I would just encourage them to get someone that you can because it's so freeing. Like as soon as I said it, it's like, wow, like it's no longer it's no it's it's not even there no more. Like it's the thought of it of me just totally forgiving the person that hurt me is what helped me, you know, and just total forgiveness. And do you think there is the ability to forgive when someone does something to that caliber, even to you? You know, we hear about it happening to family members or people we know, but when it happens to you, I mean, that's just a, that's a different level of forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, but you know, like I tell people, and I guess if you practice what you preach. We want God to hold grudges against the same type of people we hold grudges against. And, uh, I don't know what made him do that, but th there was something off, something that's sick, and I almost have compassion for because he's was that messed up, you know. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's just the, the reality of it. Like, I just totally forgive. Do you think that instance or incident set things in motion for the rest of your life? I think things like that, a lot of uh, of yeah, of keeping it in and keeping it hidden and, and keeping being sick about it and. Uh, yeah, it definitely does. Like any PTSD from that, that, that kind of really hurts and harms. And uh, you can make excuses after excuses, but there's some bad, there's some things that's happened to all of us that, that it's really made us sick. That's really hurt us. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing that and, and opening up today and, and just talking about your story and walking us through it. You have a great message, um, really a truly tremendous story. And it's a powerful one that I think is really going to resonate with a lot of our listeners and watchers. And, you know, thank you for traveling all the way out here. You, you had a long travel day today. Now we got a two-hour car ride back to the city. Um, but I'm driving you this time, not not my dad. I was wondering about, I don't know, about to make it a couple of times. <laughs> no, it, it, it is a, a long drive out here. But, yeah, man, it's been thank great talking to you, Michael. Us. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you for having me and Andrew. And we really appreciate you. I was, I, was, I was always stalking you before I got the invite. I'm like, wow, that's cool. You know, and I didn't even know about locked in. I only knew about the TikTok side of it. Yeah, that's so. where I well, That's where I started. I just doing the car selfie videos on TikTok and yeah. stuff, and then got the idea for the podcast. And now, I, you know, we're doing this. We're rocking, and yeah. um, it's great. And you got a lot of good things going too. We'll plug your information into the bio of yeah. the episode, and you know, hopefully, it gets out there more to more people. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Thank you for having me. Yep, thank you.